Hey everybody, Zach here. Welcome to the show. Before we dive into this week's episode, just want to give a quick thank you and shout out to Element 451 for making today's conversation possible. I've been talking with several several of you um, about their new product packs and just want to reiterate how much of a game changer I think that this is for the higher ed CRM space. So you know that moment after you've finally gone through the whole RFP process, you've done you know training and onboarding with a CRM vendor that you selected and then you know you're in the CRM and you realize oh my gosh there's just so much work to do to get up and running right like we've got to build out our conflows we've got to build out our landing pages etc. Well with packs by element 451 this headache goes away because what packs is is it's essentially pre-packaged content right pre-built content designs and automations so you're actually able to do in minutes what would normally take your enrollment management team or your marketing team or your IT team weeks to do no code needed no writers you know no wasted time each pack is designed with a very specific goal in mind so for example you could install the senior search pack and in minutes you'll have five personalized emails that are totally branded to your school your audience segments, um, and a whole marketing automation workflow that will make the campaign run effortlessly. So in a fraction of the time that it usually takes, you'll be well on your way to achieving your enrollment goals. We all know that uh, time is everything, especially these days. So what's super cool about Element 451 is that they're, you know, they're finally a higher ed CRM that actually comes with content, guys. Like, this is game-changing. Uh, anyways, learn more at element451.com forward slash enrollify again that's element451.com forward slash enrollify and if you'd like a personal introduction to the team there um i i know artists um and they are uh, just a fantastic group of people and i'd be well I'd, I'd welcome any opportunity i can to introduce you or your team to their customer success team so feel free to reach out to me directly at zach z-a-c-h at enrollify.org if you'd like me to make that introduction or even give you a sneak peek behind the scenes look at how the product works all right, everyone. Thanks so much for your time. And thank you, Element, for making today's conversation possible. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Enrollify podcast. My name is Zach Buzicruz and I am your host for today's episode. And today I have the great honor of chatting with Rob Bilby, who is from Whiteboard Higher Education. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks, Zach. Happy to be here. Okay, Rob, I like to start every episode with a different question um, that at least somewhat correlates to either my guests expertise and or the topic of the episode. Um, so for your opening question, um, I'm just curious, what is the biggest idea running through your head right now? Um, and if biggest is too overwhelming, just what what is a big idea that's that's running through your head right now? Yeah, no, great question. Um, other than trying to get my kids started with virtual education, which consumes half of my life, uh, <laughs> the higher ed piece is really around responding to true uncertainty and inconsistency. Um, so you know, much of what I own here at Whiteboard focuses on predictive analytics and the leveraging of data. And 2020 threw that all kind of through the chipper. And you know, 
that is what we've been trying to respond to. And we've seen a lot of success and it's just using data in different ways and strategizing in different ways. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, when I see, I see, you know, report after report after report coming out and I feel like my LinkedIn feed is just like, uh, infiltrated with, uh, you know, the latest data on student search or the latest data on, on enrollment for public institutions, private institutions. And, um, I think like, wow, like the people that are actually running these reports and, uh, like pouring over this data, um, it, that, that must just be what they do full time today now, because it's just, it seems as if they're like every week there's like some new report that uh, everyone's talking about and, and freaking out about um, and or and or pleasantly, you know, uh, surprised by or excited by. So first and foremost, you, just, you know, thank you for the work that you do. It, it really matters. And folks like me get to interview cool people that have worked on this stuff um, that that know this data. Um, so thanks for the work that you do. And I'm excited to sort of dive into a little bit of it today and, and hopefully share some new uh, new insights with our listeners. Yeah, sounds great. You're quite welcome. It's uh, you're right. It's a twenty four seven. And frankly, you know, the people at the institutions are doing probably ten times as much as we are with the data because what what it was last year just isn't what it is this year. Yeah, talk about like you know benchmarks just going out the door. Um, all right. So next question for you: You're sitting on a plane and it's post COVID, uh, and the person sitting next to you asks what you do. Uh, they're, you know, one of those people that don't want to talk the entire flight, right? But they're not going to get, you know, they're not going to let you get away with a, a simple answer like, I work at a student search firm, you know, either. So how do you explain to them what you do, uh, what your career to date has has looked like, and then what whiteboard is? Yeah, great question. It, the, the elevator pitch, right? Exactly. Uh, so whiteboard broadly, we define ourselves as an and full service enrollment services firm offering a boutique experience. So these kinds of firms used to exist 20 or 30 years ago. Um, they've kind of glommed onto one another, been acquired by others, been purchased by you know, large scale investment. And the middle market immediate enrollment partner who understands the top of the funnel all the way to the bottom of the funnel is whiteboard, what Whiteboard was built to be. Hmm. I plug into that broader team of enrollment service professionals as an analytics professional and a financially awarding professional. So I came, I'm a failed academic. I went for my PhD at University of Michigan, got all the way through my comps and just decided that the working world was more interesting. Huh. Uh, specifically, Doing, being able to do the kind of research and the kind of analysis that we were doing in academia, but working with partner institutions and seeing the real impact of that work. And so that's what I do at Whiteboard. I work with partner institutions, get my hands on their data, get to understand their strategic goals over time, specifically in the space of enrollment and financial aid, and then help them leverage that data to effectively bring in a class every year. Uh, meeting whatever the enrollment goals are. So if it's headcount, if it's revenue, if it's class profile, uh, demographics, all kinds of different stuff. So I'm curious, what have you always been interested in higher ed? What, you know, what did life look like before? I mean, you know, once you realized you weren't going to be a professor, you you weren't going to take the academic approach. um, What, what has your interest been? uh, Or I guess maybe a better question is how long have you been interested in the space? 
Sure. Yeah. So my, I actually failed academia twice. Started out as a political psychology PhD okay. um, at Stony Brook University in New York. Fantastic program. Uh, and learned tons of stuff about data analysis. But while I was there, I worked at what was called the Undergraduate Colleges Program. Still there. Huh. Uh, first year experience program developed by the former president of the institution, run by someone who I have a ton of respect for, Gene Peden, uh, who's since moved on. But it was built off of a foundation of academic research. And when I was studying political science, which I don't know, in this environment, like political science becomes more and more painful as time goes on. Um, I didn't see a direct impact of any of the research being done in politics. Huh. Seeing the direct impact of higher education research on outcomes for students and experiences for students was very exciting to me. And so after two years of political science and tons of statistics work, I applied to the program at University of Michigan, Center for the Study of Higher and Post-Secondary Education. One of the best in the country, tons of stats focus, tons of policy focus, and that's what I wanted to do. And so that's been, I don't know, almost 15 years ago. And that's pretty much when I latched onto higher education as my topic of interest. I've hopped in and out a little bit, uh, spent some time in corporate market research, but most of my time has been in the higher ed realm. Fascinating. Wow. That is, I, I don't know that I know too many people. You might be the only person that I know that has gone for two, not finished either, and is now doing really meaningful, meaningful work um, related to, to higher education. So uh, I love that. I, I'm sure, I'm sure there's uh, more to the story and Hey, maybe one time uh, post COVID when we're all allowed to go out again, we should uh, meet up, grab some beers and, and hear the rest of that story. Cause um, that's, that's really, really interesting. Uh, again, I, I really do think I'm, I'm like racking my head right now. I think you're the only person that I know that fits that uh, falls into that category. Um, so very, very interesting. Uh, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, so we're going to have a conversation today about how to more effectively leverage data to make informed enrollment planning and financial aid strategic decisions during this very, very uh, unprecedented moment. And um, I think it's uh, fair to just say kind of at the offset of, of this conversation that uh, it's really, really hard to uh do this work right now. And I think that some people, in fact, several listeners who've reached out to me um, and and just expressed sort of concern and confusion around sort of the chaos in their environments and um, really struggling to, to think strategically and make really good decisions and stick to those decisions because it feels like they're environment is is constantly outside of their their control um so i think it's it's fair to kind of say that um at the offset here and yet at the same time you know we do need to make decisions in higher education as as enrollment management teams like we have to you know do our best to come up with a plan stay as true to that plan as possible um so that we can you know give some semblance of order to to our teams some sense of of order and rough predictions to our leadership um etc so I stumbled upon this uh, this article um, that was uh, in Inside Higher Ed, and it was actually co-written by leaders at Huron Consulting and Whiteboard. And the authors noted that, and this is a this is a quote: "As a rising chorus of higher education leaders and commentators is observing, now may be the time for a great." many institutions to set aside hope as the foundation of their strategies going forward and fundamentally reimagine their business models. 
I'd love for you to this is this is you know a, a, a you know a statement that's just filled um, with with a lot. Um, so can you flesh out the why for this uh, a bit more for us, uh, Rob? I'm just curious. How do you read that? How, what does that mean to you? And why why is it significant? Yeah, no, I. It's a great quote that you picked because I think it's. And it's a critical time for higher education broadly. And I think there, there are different segments of higher education that are having to address this thought process uh, at different stages. So your tuition dependent private institution that's been engaged in enrollment management for the past 30 years has probably been doing this to a certain degree. Um, you know, one of the things that we started addressing before COVID even hit uh, was a demographic cliff coming for the Midwest and the Northeast to a great degree, limiting the available students to enroll and therefore limiting your revenue prospects as tuition dependent institutions over time. And so we've been planning for that to a certain degree. But honestly, you know, 30 years of higher education has been this everybody wants to send their kids to a four year residential experience. Yeah. And they're willing to pay, you know, X amount of dollars, depending on the fit of that institution. But the national conversation has started to change. Um, there's a lot of pushback against the requirement to go to higher education. I'm from the Midwest where, you know, there's been a long desire to return to a livable wage for a factory line job. Yeah. And that is becoming prevalent. And so institutions that ignore those demand side factors and don't really start thinking about what their supply side strategy is are you know potentially going to fall behind as you know we move through the next few years of what it means to enroll a class yeah that makes a that makes a lot of sense and um i guess a, a good follow-up question then is just how do folks go about doing so a lot of a lot of the people listening to the podcast today right are folks who are either vps of enrollment um they might be vps of marketing or or uh, directors of of graduate admissions so um not too many that at least i'm aware of are um you know at uh, the president level or 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 you know some might be a part of the cabinet but others might uh might not be so folks have some influence but not you know, huge influence over sort of uh, institution-wide priorities and might have little to uh, no uh, say in sort of the business model of the institution. So I'm curious, from your vantage point and from your experience, how do folks like go about having a productive conversation around reimagining sort of how institutions make money, like what their business model actually should be? Like, I guess what how how do you how do schools even begin to tackle you know this Goliath of a problem? Any any sort of pointers or or how do you guys I guess help walk folks through uh, this discernment process to to figure out what they actually do in order to keep the lights on? Yeah, fantastic question, right? And it it breaks down ever differently depending on what institution you're talking to. I personally frame it up, and I think this fits for that broad range of you know roles that you spoke to, whether you're you know, an admissions counselor or a president. It all aligns with value proposition. What is your institutional identity? What are you offering to students? And how are you supporting that on a funding side? And how are you 
building revenue based on that value proposition. Hmm. So, you know, pricing is only one small component of what you're doing with these businesses. If you don't have value to offer on the back end, and you don't speak of that value in an effective way, you're not going to connect to the consumer who, you know, broadly, if we think of higher education as a business, the students and the parents are the, the consumer. Sure, sure. You need to sell this to them in an appropriate way. We want them to fit appropriately into the institutions that they enroll at. Um, but we need to sell them what we have to offer. And just saying, you know, hey, we're here, we're local, regional, state institution is not always going to work. Yeah, yeah. Do you, I'm curious, do you think that the issue, and again, this is this is general, um, this could be a generalization, but do you think that we're dealing with more of like a product issue here or is it is it a market issue? Is it product market fit? Like when I think about uh, even just my own college experience, my own, my own undergrad experience, um, I think about sort of like what I paid to go to, and I went to a state school, um, but I was paying, I was paying for um, school out of, out of pocket um, and, you know, paid my way through school, worked my way through school, et cetera, um, which was great. And I was, you know, very fortunate and privileged enough to be able to like do that. Um, Many, you know, many people aren't in that sort of, uh, aren't, aren't able to do that. So what, but when, when I think about sort of like what I've, what I learned and sort of like the pitch from college, um, during sort of the, the admissions process in, I felt a little bit like I was sold more on the experience of school than I was the actual product of like the program, um, the, the major that I selected. And if I'm being, you know, really critical, I don't know, like, I think, you know, I, I learned a lot in school. It was, it was great, but from an actual product standpoint, I don't know that, you know, the business school that I, that I went to, um, you know, the business major that I pursued was that unique. Like I, I, it, it didn't feel like there was anything super special about, you know, George Mason's school of business than the other school of business down the street. So I guess what, one, one of the, as we're kind of thinking about sort of like re not reinventing higher education, but like being really critical about like the business model here, do you see sort of like the products and in this case being like the programs as, as the biggest obstacle or where do you think like friction exists when it comes to the business model of higher education? Yeah. So (laughs) you framed that up really well. Um, One of the things that I'll say is that no insult to you and your family, but families who are considering higher education are becoming much, much more educated consumers than they were five or 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so the, you know, we do a lot of surveying of families and you literally see people talking in terms of net price. They understand, you know, how to do the calculation to figure out what are their out-of-pocket cost is and how do they benchmark that against the other programs that they're looking at. Yeah. So it shifts away from I'm going to look at all of these institutions. Um, and, you know, we can talk about the, the PPY rule of the FAFSA and how 2017 kind of was the year that all of this stuff really shifted because now families are submitting their FAFSAs really early in the cycle and they see what it costs to go to every institution much earlier where that used to happen in about March and they visited all of the campuses and the family fell in love with, you know, Jimmy's going to go to this school. Now 
they're seeing that stuff in October and November. Yeah. Maybe November. And they're slashing institutions off their list who might have a great experience, but just don't aren't actually affordable. And they're not going to force themselves to afford it just because they fell in love. Yeah. So part of it is right pricing and right sizing your institution for what you're offering programmatically. I think it's not trying to be everything to everyone. I think this is where a lot of institutions got in trouble. You know, you start seeing this is a popular major. That's a popular major. Oh, you know, this segment of students wants to go there. And the institutions that are really rushing forward right now are the ones that have said, this is who we are. This is the appropriate consumer group for us. And we're going to continue pushing along those fronts. Everybody else, I think, is going to have to take a big step back and evaluate. These are the things that we offer. This is the level of demand that we have. Does this align with who we are as an institution? If so, yes, let's keep doing it and let's build on the strengths that we have. But if there are weaknesses, you know, we see institutions broadly are just slashing programs and slashing sports in the face of COVID. Yeah. And I have to question the degree to which there's a really effective thought process behind that. Or if it's just, look, here's a couple of budget items that we know we can get rid of. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, and, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess like a, a follow-up question then is what do you like, what, what I hear you saying is that when it comes to unique value proposition, there's just a lot of uh, maybe a lot of fog for many institutions about like what their UVP actually is. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like COVID, like every everything that we're dealing with right now has just highlighted the fact that at the end of the day, a lot of schools don't know what their unique value proposition is, or they don't know what you know market segment, what kind of prospective students will excel um, at their institution, or they might know that, but they might you know want to to be bigger than that and broader than that. And in this era where the whole business model is coming into question, maybe you know the answer isn't to get broader and and less specific, but actually a little bit more narrow and and more specific. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it really, it depends on the individual institution. What I find as well, you know, as a data analytics professional is that often the answers are there, you know, who your true student is, who's the successful student at X university. Um, Somebody knows, and it's just that institutions tend to be pretty siloed and the ones that are siloed where you don't have admissions talking to financial aid, financial aid isn't talking to leadership and IR isn't talking to either one, there, there need to be better information streams across all of those silos to allow the school to better understand who they are. Um, another thing that we've you know, really been focusing on with institutions is having a longer term enrollment perspective. Huh. So what does that mean? Of, so <clears throat> historically, we work with institutions on a year by year basis. And at this time of the year, we're talking about, all right, how many admitted students do you expect to get? What are your revenue targets? What are your headcount targets? And how do we want to distribute aid to make that happen? Um, and then we get to, you know, September of next year. Okay, census, did we hit our target? Did we not? What are the goals for next year? Do all the, it all over again. Yeah, yeah. Trying to get schools to take a step back, especially in the face of COVID, you know, all of the other turbulence that's happened over the past five years. Sure. Uh, to say, what's your, who do you want to be in five years? Who do you want to be in seven years? What do you want your enrollment to look like? And not just headcount and revenue, but 
What do you want your demographic distribution to look like? Do you have a plan to become a more national university? Almost everybody does. Um, what do you want your academic profile to look like? Yeah, you know, I, I know we're gonna touch on test scores, which is an interesting question for this year. Um, but to lay that out and to say, you know, it's not just about who you bring in, it's also about who you retain and how students perform and how you graduate them over time how you deal with your pricing structure over time, you know, how tuition rates are going to shift and having all of that laid out when we hit a 2020 and, you know, we have to either pivot midstream and get more aggressive on the recruitment side or the aid awarding side, or we just bite the bullet and decide we're going to miss our class by a little bit this year. You have that longer term strategy to go back to and say, all right, well, we thought we were going to be here, in order to get back on trajectory, these are the shifts that we need to make. And we still know that we can make a plan for next year that looks pretty similar to what we were thinking initially. That makes a lot of sense. Um, but I guess a, a follow-up question is, I mean, it, this is this is total, this is totally like anecdotal, but like a lot of the people that I've been talking to, that our, that our team has been talking to, it's it's like I can't even see past three to six months right now. Like I don't talk to me about like a twelve month game plan for my enrollment marketing, right? And like obviously, I think that that's just some chaos in in this actual moment, and things will settle down, and people will be like, okay, well, hey. We're going to be dealing with COVID. We're going to be dealing with the ramifications of, of a total disrupt, total disruption in higher ed for you know, years to come. Let's be a little bit more strategic and, and calm down and come up with a plan. So some of that I think is just is just short term. But I guess how how do you think like how, how would you encourage folks who do feel sort of like I'm I can't make any sort of decision or like I feel like just pulled in you know in zillions of directions right now and. Every time I talk to my leadership, it's like another, you know, line item in my budget is being cut and or people are saying, hey, you know, you've got to recruit more, uh, you know, enroll more with with less enroll more students with less resources this year. So, like, I guess what what kind of quick bits of advice would you give to the folks that feel like, hey, Rob, I hear you. I, I want my school to think in terms of like the three and five year plans. But right now I can't even get my, you know director to approve my budget for the fall and it's already you know late september yep yeah i mean so <laughs> welcome to my entire summer so <laughs> whiteboard works with about 50 clients broadly and we've got just above 20 uh you know analytics aid awarding enrollment strategy partners and i host a bi-weekly set of roundtables for a bunch of vps uh, to just give them some space to come and talk, especially given the nature of this year and for people to sort of commiserate and share experiences and share pain points. And one of the things that I started doing in, I don't know, maybe late July was saying, hey, so is anybody thinking about 2021? Because everybody was still sitting and thinking, how are we, is the yeah. class going to come in? You know, who's going to melt? What's going to happen with aid? What's going to happen with all of these other things? And this is at the VP level. Yeah. And mostly people sitting on cabinet. So I feel the pain of everybody below who are like, yeah, no, I'm still, we don't know if we're going to be allowed to visit high schools this year. What are we going to do to set up virtual visits? How, you know, these virtual college fairs, which seemingly have been crashing. Um, how do we manage the next couple of months? And the thing that winds up happening is I have to take these conversations and we have to elevate them. 
So the places where we get them, get institutions to buy in and really start thinking in this frame is when we can get things in front of a president or a provost. Yeah, who, yeah. Who have to be able to take that step back. They aren't a component of the execution, uh, but they do have to, you know, they're impacted heavily by the execution of the work, but they have to help think in that longer term frame. And so as much as we work hand in hand with admissions directors and we're helping frame up, you know, visit strategies for counselors and evaluating the impact of, you know, different online and offline engagement strategies. We also have to help push that conversation up to the top level and provide really high level data analytics tools to do it. Yeah. So that, I mean, what we wind up doing is building out a much more blunt instrument for that long-term enrollment budget model is kind of what we call it. So instead of a student level distribution of aid, we're talking about aggregated numbers of enrollment in a couple of different segments, or maybe it's by college, but to understand, look, are we heading towards a cliff or not? And for you know your enrollment professional and your admissions professional, that can be really hard to do. Um, and it's why often there's a partner there who can help kind of think through and then get your feedback and build all of these things into a larger scale model. Yeah, no, uh, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I do think it's really crucial for, for, for folks to really understand, especially just in light of, in light of just how I, frenetic I feel like m many people are right now is, okay, how do you develop a crawl walk on strategy? You will, I mean, to be blunt, like you will suffer, you, your, your institution will suffer, enrollment will suffer, your team will suffer if you don't, you know, look up quite frankly. And it, like, it, it's really important to tackle sort of like the day's challenges, but at the same time, you've got to, you know, balance that with, okay, where are we going? Like where, you know, what does 2021 look like? What does 2022 look like? And I think that the most successful teams will be the teams that are able to not ignore today's, today's challenges, but not let today's challenges overwhelm them and prevent them from doing the strategic planning necessary to, to think really critically and carefully about what the next couple of falls um, um, will look like. So good points there, makes makes a lot of sense. I'm curious uh, to, to kind of talk a little bit about you know, financial aid and just uh, how institutions are going to make make admissions decisions um, for, you know, in some cases this spring, but um, mostly, you know, for, for next fall here. You know, we just went through a season where many folks uh, did not have, uh, most institutions went ACT or, or SAT optional and, and dropped those requirements. Um, and, I, you know, expect that that will in all likelihood, I mean, there's already been obviously lots of conversation about standardized testing and whatnot, lots of, uh, you know, skepticism and, and criticism. Um, and, you know, we've seen schools sort of many institutions anyways, drop these requirements over the past several years. But like, I guess this brings up a really good question around, you know, how, how should schools think about scholarships? You know, how can institutions create a policy that isn't, you know, far worse than one that requires a test score? Like, how do you guys help your clients uh, navigate these, these really big and, and very important questions, especially, you know, in a, a time where, 
you know, the world is, is more cognizant of privilege and the world is more aware of the need to um, have systems in place that are uh, inclusive and not exclusive. So this is a, a very broad kind of big kind of powerful question here, but uh, how do you guys wrestle with this? And more specifically, how do you help your clients wrestle and, and walk through these, these really big questions? Yeah, no, important question, very relevant to 2020. Um, and truly relevant to the last several years, you know, we saw last fall, I think it was when uh, University of Chicago went test optional and you know, people have been going test optional for a while, but that one kind of was a big uh, flash in the pan or whatever you want to call it. Happily for whiteboard and probably to be honest, you know, most financially awarding partners broadly, this is kind of our bread and butter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, <clears throat> We have been helping institutions frame up merit structures in, is the terminology that we generally use for it for a long time. And it's generally a process where we evaluate, you know, what are the characteristics of students that you want to bring in and how do those things relate to these measurable characteristics that we can get off of a transcript or we can get off of, you know, the SAT, ACT, et cetera. And how do we align those two things so that you're bringing in the students that you want by offering additional merit-based aid to the students that you want to encourage to enroll? Sure. Uh, so in the face of, you know, the next maybe one, two years, not having SAT or ACT available by force, right? Um, we have to bring other things to the table. So, uh, you know, Whiteboard, we've got a blog post that went out in the past couple of weeks where there's a ton of schools that we've worked with where we look and we say, hey, you know, GPA is working pretty darn well. Hmm. Um, we can pull GPAs off of high school transcripts and we work with schools to evaluate, does that need to be the weighted GPA? Does that need to be the unweighted GPA? And we can, you know, play out the implications of looking at either one. We can look at the rigor of their high school transcript and what kind of course taking they had. Um, you know, and that can go down to, did they take more second language courses than they needed to? Did they take a calculus class? Uh, were they in an honors trajectory? Did they take AB and IP classes? Uh, AP and IB, sorry, flip those around. And that helps in a year like this year where, yeah. you know, we might have to flip everything on its head and we see a broad range of institutional responses. Some saying, hey, we're going test optional for the next couple of years we're going test optional for next year or we're permanently test optional. We also see the other extreme, we're going test blind, um, where not only are we going to not require that you submit a test, but even if you do, we're not going to use it in the calculation of your merit. Wow, wow. Uh, and so that's all possible. What we find is that there are varying levels of success in using tests across institutions. I've got some partners who, when we initially started working together, we looked and said, should we shift to GPA alone or is test score adding additional, you know, predictive power? And for some institutions, yes, absolutely. Test scores help and they help you understand who the students are that are going to be successful on campus, which is often my metric to say, who's going to retain, who's going to have a good first year GPA, who's likely to graduate. And we want to recruit those students with more merit. And then other schools, no, it didn't really help all that much. And you could probably rely heavily on GPA and do just fine. Um, and so we really walk through that with every single client 
and help them evaluate, this is the structure that works for you. And this is what will help your students be successful. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think like the, I don't, I, I'm a very optimistic person, but I think that this is going to really force, uh, really kind of like bring in a new era of um, uh, redefining sort of the the admissions process and how schools even think about uh, candidates for their institution and what are the things that um, admissions teams actually, you know, actually matter most to admissions teams. And um, b- based off of, again, not just like, based off of the the institution's strategic priorities. If like we're looking to seriously go about increasing diversity, if we're really interested in growing our, you know, STEM programs, whatever it might be, those have mm-hmm. a bearing on the kinds of students that uh, an institution wants to go after. And the idea that like the, you can you can make these strategic uh, uh, shifts kind of at the institutional level and that that doesn't have a bearing on sort of the the application process is naive. And I, I, I think that there are examples of schools that are doing like leadership is saying one thing, but then when it comes to the actual enrollment management process, nothing's really changed. Um, and that's that's really, really hard. So I, I'm very hopeful that, you know, COVID has forced this reality. Um, and I think that you're going to see lots of schools change the way in which they think about uh, walking students through this process. And I think it's going to be really exciting. I think I think it's going to be a net good at the end of the day, even though it'll probably be pretty turbulent and and, you know, somewhat challenging for the next couple of years as we all kind of step into this. Yeah, it's um, I will tell you, it is a painful process and it's one that, you know, we like having benchmarks from prior years right yeah if all of a sudden the benchmark that you've been leveraging for a long time is taken away and we're evaluating how's our class coming even schools that were test optional um knowing that we used to have 30 percent of our pool that was test optional now 75 percent of our students are either choosing not to take a test or weren't able to get their hands on a test what does that mean yeah Yeah. (laughs) It, it makes it really interesting yeah, no, and 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 that's actually a fantastic segue into my next question here, which is, you know, uh, you get this came from a blog post you guys recently put out. I don't know if this is the one that you just referenced a moment ago, but you know, you guys said that you know, last year a student that visited a campus in you know in late March might have been two to three times more likely to enroll than a student that did not. This year, with travel restrictions, campuses closing, and events being canceled left and right, you know, baselines have been totally disrupted, and this makes it really hard to predict enrollment likelihood. And again, this, this post I think was published, um, back in, back in the spring. So, you know, think about this fall, think about this spring, right? Same, same sort of things, uh, apply here. What I'm curious about are, you know, what indicators can and should enrollment marketers use this fall and into the spring to discern kind of inquiry and applicant quality, um, when they can't rely on some of the things that they've relied on for, you know, 10, 20 plus years. And like the campus visit is so crucial. So maybe even just talking about that, like how do school, how do enrollment management teams, how do, how do marketing and communications teams think differently about ways to understand intent um, in a and, and likelihood to enroll in an environment where some of these kind of easy, easier sort of touch points, these easier points of intersection um, aren't as easy to access? Yeah, I mean, what a critical question and truly what I'll be spending the next, I don't know, nine months of my life on. Um, <laughs> so I think one piece is that, thank goodness, visits have 
come back in a lot of places. And I've got plenty of anecdotal evidence to say that families are desperate for those visits. So the schools that are reopening campus in some way, and you've got one tour guide leading up to six or 10 people, whatever the rules are, uh, and you get hour, one hour or 45 minute slots or 30 minute slots. And some of these schools are booked solid five, six, seven days a week for every window that they have offered. Um, you're still not getting the high volume of an open house or, you know, admitted student day was the big one that fell off in the spring for a lot of institutions. But we still can have our eyes on visit and it's evaluating, you know, as you quoted, if last year it was two to three times more likely to enroll if a student had visited by March or February or whatever the number is, um, maybe that's four or five. I mean, we're kind of guessing. Yeah. But you're having, I always talk about these things as sort of behavioral bars that indicate a student's affinity to imply or enroll. Hmm. If the bar is high, so we're taking a pre-COVID measure of visit where, sure, you just showed up to campus and like as long as you signed up for the right day and somebody wrote your name down, you're a visitor. Now you have to do a pre-health screening. Everybody's got to bring a mask. You have to show up within your specific time window. Yeah, yeah. That bar just went up. Yeah, yeah. That, so that I think is one, we still have our eye on visit and it just might be in a little bit of a different way. So your numbers might be down on visits, but they might mean a little bit more than they had in the past. FAFSA is one or CSS profile, depending on who you are as an institution. Another key indicator, that's something that COVID really hasn't had too much of an impact on in terms of your ability to file once that rolls around in the fall. So that'll be another key indicator. And now, thank goodness for CRMs. Uh, (laughs) What a huge source of data. It's messy. And you have to learn how to wrap your head around it. But we've been leaning into a lot of different things. So um, Whiteboard Broadly, in addition to being an analytics firm, we also work in the student search space. And, you know, we've got 40-ish partners in there. And so we look at students' levels of engagement with a search campaign. How many emails are they opening? How much are they reading? How much time do they spend on an email? What are they clicking through on? What are they clicking through to? We send videos in our search campaigns. So do we have students engaging with video when they aren't engaging with print? Um, All interesting looks at the data to evaluate who is actually interested. And then as you get into the inquiry phase and sort of move out of that student search level, Inbound communications, who, who's answering phone calls? Phones have come back around in 2020, which I think most enrollment professionals thought had died away. Yeah. Um, so we're calling tons of students, we're texting people, who's responding to the texts? And then for our Slate partners, um, looking at ping data. So you can install pixels across your website and we can evaluate once you tie a, an IP address to a student identification, we can evaluate who's hitting what pages, how frequently did they ping a website after we sent them some kind of information or you know, have they hit you know, their, the admissions portal a whole bunch. This is often a really good indicator. Um, but yeah, all of these things that kind of existed for the past couple of years, but we knew we had visit, we knew we had FAFSA, you know, we knew we had a couple of other demographic profiles that were really predictive. As those other things start to fade, to a certain degree for some students, we need to bring all of these other pieces of information to bear. Uh, And then, you know, on my end, we're building out predictive models to say, all right, based on everything that we can see now, 
who's most likely to apply or who's most likely to enroll. Yeah, no, that's, that's, there's so much gold there, um, Rob. And you know, one of the things that I'm even thinking about as you're, as you're talking is, uh, for, we used to, uh, talk to our clients a lot about like, you know, show rates and, you know, you'd have 500 people RSVP for your info session. Um, we, we work, we actually work with a lot of graduate schools. So at the graduate school mm -hmm. level too, right. You'd see, okay, 500 people for, uh, RSVP'd for a, uh, all programs, you know, open house or something like that. And if you got a show rate between like 50 and 60%, right. That was like awesome. Like people were like ecstatic about that. And, yep. um, even, you know, and so, now what's really interesting, like to your point is, okay, maybe, I mean, 250 people is a, is still uh, too many in, in this, uh, in this reality, but like, you know, if you get half the number of people to RSVP for something, but all of them show up or 90% of them show up, right. Um, talk about quality of, of inquiry, talk about quality of, of prospective applicant. Like, um, I think what you're going to see is, as you've you know already uh, pointed out here, is you're going to see okay who are the people that are that are most qualified and most ready, um, and it's going to change. Like people are going to have to change their their point of reference and, and their benchmarks from expecting huge amount you know huge numbers of, of quantity of RSVPs or, or quantity of visits. Um, but hey, you know I'll take quality over quantity any day, and I think like we're going to see a, you know more and more of a shift when it comes to not just admissions, but marketing too, and how marketing evaluates the success of their campaigns. You know, maybe quantity of inquiries yeah. or quantity of leads will 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 go down, but the quality uh, should go up because the barrier to entry is, you know, just you know, that much harder or that much more complex. Um, and I think that that's really a, an, an important takeaway for our listeners is to really understand, uh, you know, how, how to kind of shift your mindset in uh, we're, we're so used to associating like quantity with like success when in reality, if like your yield rate is really low or your inquiry to app rates are, are really low, um, who cares about 250 only generating 250 inquiries when you're used to generating 500, if all 250 of them start applications, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, if you're borderline quoting the whiteboard mantra, um, a quality over quantity, you know, we want to help our partners leverage their resources as effectively as possible, as opposed to just leveraging resources to build a gigantic app pool. The idea is that we want to build you the highest affinity app pool possible so that your team is engaging with a pool of people who are actually considering enrolling, as opposed to a huge chunk of fluff who, sure, they submitted some kind of application that kind of had their name on it. Um, but otherwise, they don't even know who you are and they were never going to come. All right. I've got two final questions for you. You ready for them? Yeah. Okay. Uh, first one is, you know, whiteboard. This is kind of throughout your guys' uh, materials and, and whatnot on, on your site here. But you guys talk about like how, taking a recruitment-centered approach to enrollment planning and financial aid. And I'm just hoping you could take a couple of minutes to kind of like flesh this out for us. Um, you know, what what does this actually mean, and why why is there unique value in this approach? Yeah. Um, so this is near and dear to my heart as uh, an enrollment consultant, enrollment professional, a financial aid awarding professional. You know, the, the leveraging of financial aid operates on the margin. It operates on the assumption that it goes all the way back to value proposition that we talked very early in this conversation, that you are effectively connecting with students and families 
around what you as an institution have to offer. You've solidified that value proposition and now we're right pricing what you have to offer for that family. If the recruitment side isn't there, financial aid can only be leveraged so far. Hmm. Uh, hmm. There's, there's only, you know, as you ask a family and they can start talking about return on investment, if they don't feel like their investment's getting them anything because they're not being recruited effectively and we're not connecting with the right families and the right families aren't being connected right with the right programs and the right offerings, then the financial aid piece goes out the window. So in terms of execution, in terms of the work that we do, we help all of our partners not only understand what your financial aid structure is and what you know the aid offering is and what we should be targeting to each family, but we help you understand who the heck the pool is this year. Yeah, and yeah. we're looking at tons and tons of cuts of the data to say, are they coming from the right places? Do they look anything like students you've engaged with in the past? Are they coming from their high schools, geographies? Do they have the right interests? Are they going for the right extracurricular programs? And all of those things then lead us into understanding how you can engage with them and use financial aid as one component of that conversation. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that um, there's a lot to be garnered from that approach. And I think, you know, folks uh, hopefully listening to today's episode, wondering sort of like, how do you kind of marry the two? Like, how do you think really strategically about, um, as you were saying even earlier, like breaking down these silos and keeping communications open um, at the end of the day, right? Like if folks stop coming, if, if your enrollment pipeline dries up, right? The institution dries up, right? Like you, you need new customers, you need new students, um, and you need you need to understand sort of like what is what are the right mix of tactics and strategies necessary to get those right fit customers and, and get more of them again, which which in this case is is students. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, and if uh, if folks want to learn more about sort of like you and and that approach, what's the best way for them to to get in contact with you? Um, so go whiteboardhighered.com or .net would be the best way. I'm sure Zach, you can tie my email to this post. Yes. Yes. It's perfectly fine. If people want to email me directly, uh, I can either filter over to the student search side and I'm more than happy to have conversations with anybody related to anything uh, to do with data analytics and predictive modeling. Fantastic. All right. My final question for you and yeah actually we'll link uh the website in the show notes too so uh folks Perfect. can just get there uh quickly if they're on spotify or apple just click the show notes and and you'll, you can click on over to the to whiteboard's website um but my final question for you rob is as you work with schools um in an array of contexts right now what brings you the most hope like there's a lot that's uncertain there's a lot of uh, chaos as we've spent enough time talking about already today, but what, what excites you about the future of it, of, of higher ed? Like what, what, you know, looking beyond the fog here, what does Rob get most excited about as you know, he thinks about next year and in the next few years in higher ed? So I'm, you know, in the face of COVID, this kind of bubbled to the surface as we went through the summer. You know, a lot of us were having panic attacks as we approached what would have been May 1 and then became June 1 and July 1 for some schools in terms of the deposit deadline, wondering, is anybody going to come? Hmm. Do, do people still want to go to college? 
And through just repeated conversations, through survey analysis, through all of our evaluation of the data and all of my you know, partnerships with institutions, families still desperately want their students to have a higher education experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, we truly are offering value. There is something just life-changing that students get out of going to many of the institutions that I work with. And that came through in the face of a global pandemic. And families are still finding ways to get their students to enroll and have the experience that they hope for them. You know, it might not look exactly the same in 2020, 2021, but they want it to be there. And I think they gave me a lot of hope. I think a lot of people, you know, if you read the popular news articles, they're saying, oh, it's all going to come crashing down. Uh, I didn't see that. Hmm. What I saw was a bit of a struggle and some shifts on the margins with people who had true difficulty, but broadly people still going for that that real college experience that, you know, we've all built an industry around and, you know, come to love. Well, I love that. Um, and, and, you know, I, I can confirm those, those sentiments from the people that, uh, we speak with regularly and, um, our own, our own clients and whatnot. So, um, I think there's a lot to be hopeful for. I think at, at the end of the day, higher ed is going to come out stronger. Uh, it might, as you, as you alluded to look, look different, uh, maybe likely even more different than any of us can predict right now. But at mm -hmm. the end of the day, education is important and the value prop of, of higher ed may need to shift, may need to, maybe, you know, may need to be augmented and transformed a little bit, but, um, people need education and higher ed does incredible work. Um, and students want to learn. Um, and as long as, as long as there's a hunger for learning, there will be a need for higher ed. So Thank you, Rob, for your time. Really appreciate you coming on the episode today. Um, again, we'll link a, web, uh, a link to uh, your website in our show notes, and I'll have uh, your email uh, included um, in your little, your little author profile that we'll create for you on Enrollify's website. So uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for your time. Have a great rest of your week, and I, I hope we get to talk again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Zach. If you are an enrollment marketer working in marketing and communications or enrollment management and would be willing to be interviewed on the podcast, or if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast, please reach out directly to me at Zach, Z-A-C-H, at Enrollify.org. We sincerely look forward to working with you to make Enrollify the most trusted, go-to, digital resource for enrollment marketers out there.